Well, uh, it's interesting that, that that's how this sermon would begin, um, getting aside, because it is about waiting. And um, waiting raises questions for us. Like, where's Mike? But even more important questions. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercies. Um, show us kindness to instruct us and encourage us, perhaps by admonishment, perhaps um, by encouragement. However you see fit, let us receive it in faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And thank you for your patience. Sorry about that. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in the custody of the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them. And he attended them. And they continued for some time in custody. One night, they both dreamed. The cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers, who were with him in custody, In his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is the interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me. When it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house, for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head. And in that uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is the interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, when Pharaoh, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. 
He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. So I was blessed to spend a fair bit of time in Eastern Africa um, doing ministry. We have a number of uh, folks that we support there, our church back in Seattle. And, um, you know, you learn every place is different from every other place in significant ways. Speaking to a doctor who spent about 25 years in Africa, and he told a story of a missionary visitor, not really a missionary, but someone like me, who came to Malawi and wanted to catch one of the minibuses um, out, not in the city, but deeper into the countryside. And he came, and there was a minibus. These are a little, think a VW bus, and then imagine like 30 people in it, you know. Um, and he got in, he was ready to go to the next town, and he waited, and he waited, and he waited a long time. The bus was going nowhere. It was about an hour. So he finally realized that he should ask somebody, because he said, well, what are we waiting for? And the, uh, the bus driver said, well, we're waiting for the bus to fill up. Thought, oh. So he went back and waited a little while. And he thought, well, why does the guy want the bus to fill up? Well, he needs to pay for his gas. So he came back to the front of the bus and he said, how much do you make when the bus is full? And the guy told him it was not a lot. I guarantee it was under $20. It was probably, may, may have been under $10. I don't know. And he said, oh, well, let's go. And he gave him the money and they drove him away in a bus just with him. Now, there's a lot going on there that you can decide whether it was good or bad, uh, helpful or unhelpful. But, but what I want you to understand is that is not what it means to wait on the promise of God. You don't have anything in your disposal to leverage the acceleration of time and space with the promise of God. We've talked about the fact that uh, well, we want to, one thing we want to take away from, from the life of Joseph is that we are to understand the promise and not try to understand the providence. And here's the clue about understanding the promise. Um, you wait. You wait for it. And in waiting, in the uh, incremental baby steps, in the stagnation of time as you wait in the back of the minibus in the countryside of God's providence, well, it's then you start to learn the promise because you start to learn your heart. So we're going to take a, a look, a walk through this passage and see waiting in, a, in the fallen world. We're going to see waiting as stasis, which is, is a fancy word for waiting as waiting. Um, we're going to talk about waiting in humility, and then we're going to see some of the images of how Joseph waited, even in the last couple chapters. So, hey, let's take a look. Um, waiting in a fallen world. Uh, Joseph is uh, still there. After some time, he's still in this prison. And uh, we're seeing reflections that we do throughout the story of Joseph about his uh, station in the social hierarchy of the day. He was in a familial situation. Um, that's a structure, a social structure of still every day and every age, certainly that one. Uh, he had a favored status, and that didn't do him a lot of good. Um, then after he lost that favored status, he was projected into a, into a class structure, and um, he was then made into a slave, and then finally 
He got demoted. The only way to get demoted from slave is to become a prisoner. And he's walked through all of these pathways. But what's striking about this is that this situation involves two people who are at the pinnacle of uh, Egyptian culture and social status. To, To have any connection with anything that goes into the body of the king into the body of the Pharaoh is to be empowered and, and to be privileged and to probably have a pretty nice life going. And what's, what's remarkable about that is that it didn't really do them any good, at least not at first for the cupbearer and not at all for the uh, baker. We're told that they committed an offense. It's the same word when Joseph said, hey, I'm not going to sin against God. Remember with Miss Potiphar? It's like, I'm not going to offense against. We don't really know what it is, and, and that's not really uh, all that important. The narrator would have included it in, into us. But what we want to see is that Joseph is not just experiencing moments of injustice, but he's experiencing a world of injustice and a fallen world. This is where our faith um, operates. God's promise is not changing Joseph's world very much. We might see it uh, actuating his uh, career advancement as he becomes like the most important of all the political and social prisoners in Egypt. So good for him. I don't know how that you do that on LinkedIn, but it's not bad. But it's, it's not changing his world, much less is it changing the world. Listen to Psalm 31. Um, this is in the middle of it, about verse 15. For I hear the whispering of many, tear on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. This is central. The idea of being in a world that's broken and at some level oppositional to us, working against us, actually starts in the garden, doesn't it? When God says, hey, I'm going to curse the earth and it's going to be harder to live here. And there's going to be thorns. It's part of the, uh, at the center of the nativity. Have you ever noticed how uh, the the content of the Magnificat, of Mary's song? It's about the poor and the impoverished and the weak being vindicated and exalted. It's at the corner of the passion of Christ. It's throughout the book of Acts. So let me say a word um, about this in the story of Joseph. You know, there's um, been a tremendous amount of tumult and uh, conflict about the idea of personal agency versus the idea of, of structural dysfunction and racism and injustice. And so I'm going to solve that problem for you because the Christian answer is yes. So there, does that make up for being late to the sermon? Well, both those things are in play. We're, we're very comfortable in our tradition. I'm speaking perhaps only of myself. We're very comfortable at looking at, at the Potiphar situation and uh, Mrs. Potiphar and understanding that this passage and this story involves sexual perversity and impurity and lust. That's a very comfortable place for a lot of evangelicalism. And you know what? This story does involve a lot of issues and dynamics of lust and sexual impurity and faithfulness and all those things which should be of central importance to the people of God. But, but by the same 
token, by the same interpretive um, analysis, it's also filled with the uh, travesties of injustice that Joseph is swept into. We can't really avoid both those things is what we do with it. You know, don't try to guess my uh, political inclinations because um, one, it will, it will be super annoying to me, but two, you'll probably be wrong because that's really not the point. The, the point is the gospel enters into a broken world and God's people should be concerned about all of its brokenness. And just because it's not broken for you, just because you don't struggle with sexual sin doesn't mean that that's not an issue. Just because you don't particularly feel the dysfunction and brokenness of, of an economy or a justice system or, uh, or r- racial conflict doesn't mean it's not real. It's from beginning to end in the Scriptures. And you're believing the promise in a world that's broken like that, and it's not going to work no matter how close to Pharaoh you get. In fact, the, the world is broken even when it works. And I would tell you this, if you read places like Deuteronomy chapter 8, it's, it's actually broken especially when it works. Because when it works, it's easy to be uh, blinded to its dysfunction. And right now, you know, right now I'm, I'm, I'm living a great life right now. My life is really working right now. And what do I mean by that? Well, my kids are healthy. They're happy. They all live close by. Um, I've got enough money to, uh, to do, occasionally do fun things or, you know, maybe more than occasionally. You know, I, I get to do what I want. I have friends. I like, a, I like my job. It's easy for me to interpret the world in a way that doesn't wait on the promise. That's the danger of wealth. I was with a dear friend, a guy I've known forever, really responsible for leading me to Young Life, which was where I met Christ. And um, his father sold his business in like 1980 for, I, have, I was very close friends with the guy, so I know his dad sold the business in the early 80s for $5 million. That's like a lot of 2020 money, right? And I was talking, and, uh, his, I was talking to his dad, and he said, yeah, I just want to, uh, now I can just secure the, uh, now I can secure my grandchildren's future. And I remember thinking, dude, that'd be cool. Can I be your grandchild? <laughs> um, he's a dear man, um, but God transformed his faith, and, and this is part of the story. Um, Five years later, he called his son up and said, hey, um, can I go to work for you? And his son said, basically, the son version of, dad, you're loaded. Why are you going to work? And he said, I just sold my Jaguar to pay the mortgage. The world's broken. And if it's really working for you, that doesn't mean you're going to be, I don't know if you have a Jaguar, but whatever you have, I don't know if you're going to sell it. That's not the point. The point is you wait in a broken world and waiting is waiting. Waiting is stasis. That's the next thing I want us to see. Sometime after this, take a look at that cue um, in the narrative. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king and his baker committed a sin. Sometime is, of course, uh, a, a very abstract um, there's not a lot of content in that. It's just a season. 
And so the question is, how long of a season? And the answer is, you know, a little longer. That's how long he had to wait. The time expressions uh, for Joseph's promise don't accelerate time. There is no gospel wormhole for you to scoot over to to the alternate universe that is um, completed and full and safe for you. In fact, waiting is part of, at the center of, the life of the gospel. Listen to this. Read Psalm 130 and Psalm 131, their companion psalms. Uh, I wait for the soul. My, I, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. In his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. That's Psalm 130. Then right next to it, Psalm 131. I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. One of the things that you can do to test um, how well you understand the promise is what you're waiting for. And are you waiting? Because no one hopes, and by the way, the, in Hebrew and Greek, the idea of faith, wait, and hope, those, there's a huge Venn diagram between all those words and, and how they're translated and what they mean. You know, but here's the thing. No one, Paul said, no one hopes for what they already have. So let's turn that around. If you're not really longing and waiting for something, then what does that say about you? That says you're done. That says you're finished. That says the, the money's enough, the family's enough, the recreation's enough, um, the sports are enough, dinner's enough. But then there's also something else that it tells you. What are you waiting for? Well, I'm waiting for, um, you know, my, my children to continue uh, along their way in the Lord and to deepen. I'm waiting for my ministry to bear fruit. I'm waiting for all manner of things that are about me. And that's good. Wait for those things. Give those things to God. But I also need to, to wait for the world to be more just and more pure. You know, when I drive down Aurora, um, which is a street uh, kind of close to my house, and I posted something about it on Facebook, uh, it's filled with, uh, with sex trade workers. It's really broken. If I'm not waiting for that to change and for those folks to have help, then, well, then I'm just telling me myself that, hey, my family doing okay is enough. If my family doing okay is enough and I'm no longer waiting for more life for them, well, that's what waiting really is. What are you waiting for? Paul says, I am convinced I'm going to receive a crown of righteousness. He says this at that. Paul is one of the writers in the New Testament, and he's basically about to die. He's writing the, the young man he mentored. And he says, I'm waiting for the crown of righteousness, which awaits me and everyone who waits for the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you're a waiter. That's what faith does, and you have to ask what you're waiting for. And this, but this next thing I want us to see you know, not only um, do we wait in stasis and then in a, uh, in a fallen world, but we also um, wait in humility. And this is really what, um, really where we make our money waiting. Yeah, I just said that. I, that's not in my notes, and, and uh, there's probably a reason because that's a, not a great way to put it. But, but in terms of what makes waiting work, 
It's that waiting fosters humility. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. And they continued for some time in custody, for some days, literally, he says, back to this time idea. So what are you supposed to do with your waiting? Well, it's supposed to foster humility. Uh, The same word is used for Joseph when he is made the Potiphar's servant and his chief servant. So one of the ways to look at Joseph is that he keeps on rising to the top of the bottom, you know, and he keeps on ex, um, excelling uh, around all the other people that have uh, maybe not had a great life. But, but what we see in language like this, if we can look deep in, you know, underneath it and understand where it comes from, we see that Joseph is still um, subjected in social hierarchy. What, what's happened to Joseph here, and this is a thing that's hard for us to get our heads around, But just because a cupbearer and a baker would go into prison, which is a significant demotion, you don't need to be an Egyptologist to understand that, okay? Um, They still have kind of social status, so Joseph is attached to them. Like Joseph is running the prison, you know, which sounds cool. But then he's like, man, I'm the king of the prison, man. I do anything I want in the prison. And then the cupbearer and the baker come. He's like, I'm not the king of the prison. Uh, Now I got to hang on. I got to make sure these guys are okay. It's humility. And if there's one thing we could probably have learned from the first part of Joseph's story is that he was a little short on humility. And and God is very, very committed to your humility. He really wants that out of you, and he really wants that out of me, and he really wanted that out of Joseph. We make much of his providential buoyancy and his institutional promotions, but he has essentially made a servant of these two it's language that's used liturgically in the temple a lot in Leviticus. It's also used of people serving someone of a higher social status. You know uh, Dawson Trotman, does anybody know that name? He founded a ministry called Navigators. And somebody asked him at a conference once, um, how do you know if you have a servant's heart? And he gave the greatest conference answer of all time. So, well, how do you feel when you're treated like one? That's a pretty good gauge. Waiting is we're put into a place where we serve. And we're going to see that. We've already seen that come to light. So, some time of service. That's why you're here. You know, you're here to serve those in need for what you're waiting for. You and I are here to serve those who are broken and being broken. Those who are wandering and need to be rescued. We're we're here to serve. But here's where you see the full measure. And I love this answer because it tells us so much about what Joseph had been learning here. Um, We have these dreams. What's up with you guys? You look downcast. He says you have evil on your face. He goes, you look downcast. And they say, well, we have these, inter- we have these dreams, but we don't, know, we don't know what to do with them. We don't, have, we, don't, we don't have an interpretation. Listen to what Joseph says. Do not interpretations come from God. Now, where do you think he learned that? Well, I think he learned it in the pit. Because, <laughs> because he, 
woke up early in the morning and was blurting out his dreams with the implied interpretation that they had already started coming true and he knew the pathway for his life. His brothers were going to bow down. His parents were going to bow down. The nations would bow down and he did not need God to interpret no dream for him. But a few years in prison, a few bruises from your brothers. In fact, it's my experience that some lessons, the best lessons, the truly important ones, certainly the lesson of humility are best learned in pits and in prisons. That's just the way it is for our hard-hearted human hearts. Jesus himself, we're told, learned by suffering. He told us to take up our crosses, which is the most counterintuitive existential act imaginable. He admonished Peter for thinking that there was another way. One time Jesus said, I'm the king, and Peter said, yeah, you are, and then Jesus Um, said, well, by the way, they're going to kill me. And Peter was like, no, they're not. And then Jesus called him Satan. That's the short version if you're not, if you're exploring Christianity. It's not a very good version. You should read it in um, the Gospel of Matthew. But the point is, Jesus called Peter Satan because it's Satan who wants to, thinks you can be formed without suffering and trials and difficulties. That's been his promise all along. This is what we're trying to say about our hearts. And then we're going to look at, uh, at some ways to uh, still wait. How do you figure out the promise? Um, it's not simply its content, although you need to figure out what God actually promised you. It's not your circumstances. We've already talked about that. Those are way too confusing. And um, you don't know how you got there or where they're going or really what's even happening in the midst of them, good or bad. It's, it's not timing. Um, it's, it's how much dominion they have over you. How much you're willing to subject your heart, your interpretation of the goodness of God, of the sweetness of your life, of how much you're allowed to hope. How much you're willing to subject those deep personal things to the bare promise of God. In an old movie called The Edge with Anthony Hopkins, is anybody old enough to know that movie? He, uh, he is uh, lost in the air, he is like lost in the mountains, the airplane crash, super rich dude. Anyway, I won't go into all the details, but he and his workmate, kind of assistant, are there. And they start getting chased by a bear and, um, for a couple days. And this scene, um, they take this, uh, the guy lures the bear into this river because they know they can't get away from him. And then right when the bear comes, Anthony Hopkins holds up this pail, I mean this impaling device, a tr- tree that was carved to a point. And the bear lunges up and impales itself um, Hey, kids, is this a great story or what? Um, Impales itself uh, right on top of Anthony Hopkins. And then the next scene, they're eating the bear. So, uh, and Anthony Hopkins says something that I, I want to transfer to God's promise for you. He says, I always wanted, this is a billionaire, I always wanted one unequivocal moment. Paul says, 
How, if God has given us his own son while we were his enemies, how will he not also along with him give us all good things? That's in a book called Romans. That's your unequivocal moment. That's your promise. That's how you wait. How much freight can that promise bear in sorrow, in victory, in joy, anxiety, sickness, job loss, promotions? How much freight can you pack on that promise for a whole lifetime? That's what it means to figure out the promise. To see how robustly engineered it is and to understand that when it's all said and done, none of us, none of us, None of us will get to God and say to ourselves, all that for this? No. So, what does it mean for him to hope? He's still, he's still waiting. Um, and I want us to see um, how vividly he waits. After he tells, after he tells the cupbearer this dream, um, in verse 14, he says, only remember me. Think about that. This is, he is not a, a robot. He, this is not Madame Tussaud's museum. This is an actual person. As soon as he gives the interpretation and you realize this guy's going to get a break, he immediately, Joseph immediately says, this is my chance. Remember me. Get me out of here. Joseph doesn't want to be there. He's not resigned himself to his circumstances. He submitted himself to God's providence, but listen to what he says. This is how he understands his circumstances. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that I should be put into the pit. This is a man who's being faithful in the moment, but understands the injustice that he's endured and his hope for more continues to live. He's not a cynic. He's not a nihilist or a nihilist. As my sister says, if they're right, it doesn't really matter how you say it. He's a hopeful man. So when you're still waiting, how do you wait? Well, you continue to hope. You want justice along that street and purity and hope and healing that I talked about in my hometown, in my town, Seattle. You want your family to be restored. You, you, you want your business to thrive so that you can provide for others and share what God has done. You can exercise the image of God. You want those things. Waiting is not a synonym for emotional death. It's actually the pathway to emotional life. Joseph, in this circumstance, is... Um, alive enough to be emotionally aware of other people in prison. I can hardly be emotionally aware of other people in the line for espresso. And Joseph is emotionally aware of these two dudes in, uh, in a prison with him. He gives insight to them, and when he sees his doorway, man, he wants it. He wants it. We're going to come back to that um, verse 21 and 23 in a minute. But what else do we learn about Joseph? Here's something, and we're, we've now talked about you wait by hoping. 
How else do you wait? Well, this is interesting. Uh, let me make an argument from silence. Um, Joseph, we're never told Joseph despaired. That's remarkable in this narrative. Now, we can infer that he despaired. I would despair. I'm Irish. Like, I've got, I've got only a small range of emotions. Like, I'm depressed or I'm funny. You know, that's, you notice I didn't say happy. I just said funny. We can infer that he, he despaired, but there's no mention of it in the cistern or in the prison or anywhere. If Joseph had a navel, we're never told he looked at it. Now, there's a lot to be said about the emotional range. You read the Psalms. Hey, God is totally okay with us losing it because of our circumstances. A lot of the Psalms are about exactly that. But, but there is a check to it. We grieve as but not as those without hope, right? Joseph has a resiliency to him. So what does his faith look like? Um, well, it's unapologetic, and we're going to go through his story now, and let me give you some. What, what, if, what does faith look like for you and me when we're, when we're waiting well? One, it's unapologetic, and that's what I love about Joseph. The early Joseph, let's not beat up on him too much, because young faith is awesome. Isn't it? When somebody just finds out about how much God loves them and they are just just completely delighted and a little bit obnoxious about the whole thing. That's where Joseph was at first and, and your faith should always have that element to it. Never lose that. Joseph's probably storing that, not bubbling over with excitement, but storing it in his heart. It's unapologetic. As we've seen also, it's, it's portable. Is anybody here old enough to remember roaming charges? I mean, some old people like, believe it, you know, there's a lot of, like, phones used to be attached to buildings. That's a whole different era. But then when they they at first weren't attached to buildings, you had to be careful where you were using it still, or they would charge you extra. That's not the way um, the promise of God worked for Joseph. It worked in the pit. It worked in in Jacob's house. It worked in Potiphar's house. It worked in prison. It works in Egypt. It, it works everywhere. You, your faith can work um, trans-circumstantial. That's what it means to have a peace that passes understanding, right? A peace that doesn't pass understanding is I know where the bills or money's coming from. I know my kids are going to be okay. I know my job is going to be fine. I know my health is going to be... You can all understand that. But this faith that Joseph had, he exercises faith and hope that that moves with him. There's also what I want to call a faith anyway faith. So there's this um, unapologetic faith. Uh, there's portable faith, and I'm gonna. And there's faith anyway. Joseph just keeps believing. You know, there, there is an absurdity to Joseph's story. There's a foolishness to faith. There, there is um, a Job-like reality to faith. God gives, God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There's a bare knuckle, I'm going to believe this despite my circumstances kind of reality to faith. It's faith that Jesus said last to the very end. It's faith that rejoices when there's no fruit on the vine. It's, it's faith that stands in 
confrontational defiance of every circumstance in your life. You know what it is? It's Saturday faith after Good Friday. And Joseph had about 14 years of that. I'd like to to have 14 hours of that. But that's what waiting means. That's why you're learning the promise, this faith anyway, faith. It's also a busy or a a diligent faith. If you want to look to see, you know, these are measures by which, how well am I waiting? What am I learning about the promise of God? What I love about Joseph is like, he is like not Eeyore, you know? He like, he like gets himself going. I don't know how he does that, how he wakes up every morning, you know, the uh, seven disciplines of effective prisoners or something. You, you know, I don't know, what, I don't know what he does or what TED Talks he listens to, but, but, but the fact of the matter is Joseph understands he does everything as if he does it for the Lord. It's an expression of, of hope to get stuff done. And I know that's hard. I mean, um, I have struggled from, uh, you know, all of my drive and all of my accomplishments have been expression of pathological anxiety, okay? Um, you know, peppered with faith now and again. So if you're struggling to get up and move and depression, I understand that. This is not a condemnation of you of it at all because it's complex and difficult. But what I, what I do want to say is that, that faith moves you even if it's just a little bit. You know, there are, there are people maybe in this room for whom uh, cleaning their kitchen would be a victory of faith on, on, a, on a day 500 of being sorrowful. Joseph's faith was effectual, as we've seen, and much has been made of. It's also what I call an out loud faith. So faith is out loud. What are we, what are we learning about it? It's, um, it hopes. Faith continues to hope. Uh, it's it's um, unapologetic and youthful. It's portable. Um, it's a faith anyway, faith and diligent. It's also out loud faith. You know, we're told a couple times that people knew why Joseph uh, was being prospered. Remember those narrative accounts? Potiphar saw that the Lord was with Joseph. How did Potiphar see that the Lord was with Joseph? Potiphar saw that the Lord was with Joseph because Joseph told Potiphar that the Lord was with him. The the cupbearer, although he forgot, the cupbearer knew that um, because he said interpretations are from God. So these are ways that we wait. But I want to... to humble us with our waiting, and I want us to see these verses at the end, and then we'll, we'll conclude today. He restored, Pharaoh restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Okay. Three things happened to three different people. One has his promise realized. One 
has his fears realized. And Joseph is in the middle. Still waiting. That's where you are. That's where the promise puts us. Our head won't be lifted up and it won't be taken off yet. We're just to live in the promise. To go back to the illustration or at least the, the, um, the idea of transportation that we did at the beginning of the message. I was in Atlanta once. We just kept waiting and waiting in Atlanta on the, air, on the tarmac. And finally, the, um, the pilot gets on the plane and says, Sorry for the wait. Uh, there's weather and backup in Seattle, and they aren't going to let us leave until we have a place to land. Well, God wasn't going to let Joseph leave till he had a place to land. There was no buying my way out of that. So learn to wait. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for your mercies. I ask you, please, Lord Jesus, to um, help us to wait well. Just even one of these things, if we could do that today and build on it for tomorrow, would bless you and us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.